Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Did Canada make a huge mistake in legalizing marijuana? Dr. Kevin Sabet was the former senior advisor at the White House under Obama, Bush and Clinton. And he says, yes, Canada did. Is it just possible that the next case of criminal drug possession may result in a claim of violation of charter rights now that cannabis has been legalized? Criminal lawyer, constitutional lawyer and op-ed writer for the Globe and Mail, David Butt said, that's not going to happen. He is Canada's former Minister of Justice and Attorney General. I asked him about the marijuana law. He had a lot to say about it, not only from the perspective of the former politician, but also from the perspective of the father. Here's Peter McKay. Jamal Khashoggi's death continues to create headlines. The Saudis now saying that he died fighting, probably for his life. I spoke with Dr. Christian Luprecht. He was in Turkey when Khashoggi was killed and lived in Kuwait for five years. He's a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. Here's what he had to say about that situation. John Letts wrote a letter to MPs pleading for his son Jack to be allowed into Canada. This is after Mr. Letts spoke with us last Sunday exclusively. I played back some of what John Letts said to Dave Smith, the Ontario MPP, who's introducing legislation to strip any returning terrorists of their Ontario privileges. Kyle Matthews is the executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights. He wrote an op-ed which was titled, Why Canada Must Prosecute Returning ISIS Fighters. I spoke with Kyle Matthews about that. Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun joined me on how things are changing for journalists as far as life and safety is concerned. And we spoke specifically about a Toronto Sun photographer who was attacked at a rally just this past summer. Jesse Mello is the Vancouver-based daughter of a former professional boxer, Eddie the Hurricane Mello, who with his best friend was shot to death in Toronto in a $75,000 contract killing. The hitman is coming up for parole. And Jesse Mello is very angry. She spoke to Scott Newark about that. Leading things off is Dr. Kevin Sabet. He's a former senior advisor to the White House administrations of Presidents Obama, Clinton, and George W. Bush uh, on national drug control strategy. He was appointed in both Republican and Democrat administrations. He's the author of Reefer Sanity, Seven Great Myths About Marijuana. He's also the director of the Drug Policy Institute at the University of Florida and an assistant professor at uh, University of Florida College of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry, president and co-founder of Project SAM, Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Dr. Zabat, thank you for the time. What's your immediate response to Mr. Trudeau and the Liberal Government of Canada legalizing smoking of marijuana? Well, thanks for having me on again, Roy. It's, it's a pleasure to, an honor to be with you again. Uh, you know, I think this is a bad idea, and it was a bad idea. Uh, it was sort of an accidental campaign issue <laughs> that came up, I think, at a high school gym. And, and uh, you know, uh, Mr. Trudeau sort of said what he kind of, off the top of his head, what he thought made sense. And then that all of a sudden had to become government policy. And I think it was a really bad idea when you look at the fact that we're really creating the next big tobacco right in front of our eyes. Those vultures of the corporate world essentially are now descending on the marijuana market the alcohol industry is now involved they have uh, uh, basically invested billions literally with a b of dollars in the marijuana business as soon as that announcement was made the tobacco industry now wants a chunk of course they do they're in the business of selling death and taking a relatively benign substance that was benign for um, before the invention of the cigarette, 130 years ago, tobacco, they did combined it with nicotine, put it in a new contraption called a cigarette, uh, and now kill half a million people a year across our two countries of the U.S. and Canada. So 
it's not surprising that they want to get involved as well. And I think this is really about making a small number of people rich. Uh, it's certainly not cutting out the underground black market. I'm in Vancouver right now. I was here on the rollout. And uh, there are plenty of uh, unlicensed marijuana sellers openly selling what they wanted to sell and, and no police presence at all on it. And yet so people have said to people have told reporters, told media across the country since Wednesday, I guess people who are using it or smoking it, they feel very good about it. They're glad uh, this this move has been made. They no longer feel stigmatized. They no longer can be going to be charged for a minor uh, possession issue with with marijuana. Marijuana that it was the way to go. Sure, I'm, I'm sure they did. But the issue is, no one's in prison in Canada for uh, whose only crime is smoking a joint. That's true. <laughs> uh, so that's that's a myth. Um, of course, they don't feel stigmatized. But I actually think. We don't want to stigmatize the user. I'd rather give them treatment. And I don't want to put them in prison. I don't want to give them a you know criminal record. But I also don't want to encourage more drug use of any kind. We're in the midst of an opiate epidemic in North America. The idea that we would push a drug that 95% of heroin users start with, the idea that we would want to encourage a culture of intoxication, which is exactly what happens, and we're not wiping out the illicit market, which is what the claims are. So I... I just worry about that. And, you, and frankly, we need to learn from the U.S. experience. In, in Oregon, they're, they're supplying, they're making five times as much marijuana that they can legally sell. Uh, car crashes have doubled in Washington State. There was another report about car crashes yesterday. I just don't see how this is a win for anybody, frankly, except for the corporate guys that are going to make a lot of money from the legalization. Is there any success story that's come out of the American states that have legalized marijuana? I don't think so. I think it's actually been the opposite. You have now um, more young people using, and the fact that the age, depending here, is either 18 or 19 is a terrible decision. You know, the Canadian Medical Association and most of the medical establishment pleaded with government, said, okay, if you're going to do this, we don't like it, but if you're going to do it, please make it 25 or older. And they didn't, uh, because, you know, your brain is developing until at least 25, normally around 30 nowadays. And THC greatly affects various parts of your brain and body. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing an increase in in the United States. We're seeing the car crash issue. We're seeing workplace issues, liability issues. uh, But, but Dr. Zavetti, you do have the various states moving forward. You're going to be engaged in a debate in Michigan, I believe, in a a very short period of time. And that state is looking at legalizing. Is it is the United States state by state moving toward legalizing marijuana or not? It's a push and pull. Um, five, no state has legalized marijuana since 2016. Mm-hmm. People forget that. It's failed in seven states in the last two years. They will be voting in North Dakota and Michigan in a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, this is driven by a lot of big money corporate interests that put ads up on TV and say, this is going to be great. No one's going to be in prison anymore. And people vote on it actually thinking they're voting on decriminalization, not legalization, which, is, which are two very different policies, actually. And the reality is most people, even in legal states, they don't want a pot shop on their corner. The last thing they want are marijuana gummies and candies and THC, you know, lollipops being sold on their main streets. And I think that's going to be a big issue here in Canada, actually. I think you're going to have a lot of communities that say, you know, we don't really care if you smoke a joint and you're sort of in your basement, but you're an adult, but we do not want to be selling these edibles anywhere in our municipalities. It's going to be a big fight. I'm, I'm in Richmond uh, today as well. I'll tell you, in Richmond, where the high school graduation rate is off the charts and where it is extremely successful, the folks here, the last thing they want is marijuana and something to, frankly, hold their youth back down. One question for you, last question for you. Your book is uh, The Seven Great Myths About Marijuana. What is the single most significant of those myths? Boy, I think they're all significant. Uh, of course, I wrote the book. I'm right, biased. Right. But, uh, I think the first one is, the, the, the single most is the first one, which is that marijuana is relatively harmless and non-addictive. You know, a lot of people think this is the marijuana of the old days. This is the marijuana of the 80s or the, even the 90s, let alone the 50s, 60s, and 70s. In reality, the THC has been genetically bred to be far increased, much more than it used to be. We're now dealing with Um, you know, smoked flour that can easily be 20 to 30 percent, something totally unheard of a a few decades ago, and now concentrates being 99 percent pure. Compare that to the Woodstock days of 5 percent. I don't think people really understand when they hear the word cannabis or marijuana, they lump everything together. This is not the cannabis that most people know. This is something far greater in potency 
And I very much worry about how it's affecting substance abuse and how it's affecting the developing brain. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Dr. Kevin Sabat, is it just possible that the next case of criminal drug possession may result in a claim of a violation of charter rights now that cannabis has been legalized? No, no, you, 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 can't, you can't charge me. You can't convict me because I'm actually using a drug that was criminalized uh, just the way marijuana was. And now marijuana is legal, so you've set the precedent and you've... You've now created a charter opportunity for me to, to, to argue that to continue to criminalize the drug that you arrested me for possession is wrong. It's just a violation of my rights. David Butt is a prominent criminal lawyer in Toronto. He's argued before the Supreme Court of Canada. He's an op-ed writer for the Globe and Mail and uh, joins us on this program from time to time and really always appreciate it. David, so the, the person who is arrested thusly and makes that argument... Are they uh, are they on solid ground or quicksand? Well, you know, Roy, I, I, you never underestimate the creativity of lawyers in coming up with arguments <laughs> in court. But uh, um, I got to say, I don't think that one's going to fly at all. It, it won't get off the ground, in, in my view. And and why not? Well, um, there's a big difference between the various recreationally used drugs. Some of them are much more potent than others. Some of them are. Uh, um, much more harmless. Um, some of them, uh, you know, there's a different social attitude towards the use of them. I mean, the legalization of marijuana has largely met with social approval, and I would doubt very much that, uh, uh, you know, the approach to legalization of harder drugs, say cocaine or heroin, would meet with the same attitudes. So just because the government has moved in a direction with one particular recreationally used uh, drug, doesn't mean that the same arguments apply to all the other drugs that people use illicitly and recreationally. Is it likely that there's going to be uh, a certain class of drugs that, or certain types of drugs? I'm, I'm trying to look for the creativity of a lawyer now. I'm trying to think like a creative lawyer. Is, there, is it likely that certain types of drugs might be acceptable under that argument if we're not going to cocaine and and heroin, but but some, I don't know what they are. I mean, I'm not a my yeah. my drug of choice is is either scotch or, or a glass of wine or a beer. So that you know that's where I am. But yeah, no, I I, I join you in those uh, any day. But uh, you're right. I, I I'm not familiar uh, with uh, as a user with uh, other drugs. But it, it's difficult to imagine um, um, a different drug that uh, sits sort of in the same category as cannabis. I mean. Um, naturally, there's lots of research still to be done, but in terms right. of uh, harmful effects, it, you know, it certainly can be argued that for mature adults, um, limited use doesn't pose uh, uh, significant health consequences, at least that we've uh, you know, uncovered scientifically so far. And that's really not the case with other drugs. Uh, you, know, you, you think of cocaine can be, uh, can be fatal even in small doses, uh, um, highly addictive um, and uh, heroin, the same thing. So it's really difficult to imagine uh, that there's another drug out there that would be treated the same way that cannabis. Can, can you now. see? Can you see? First of all, can you see the case being brought forward? And can you see somebody saying, "Well, okay, so you disagree with my premise uh, to the first court, so I'm going to appeal," and uh, and then it goes to an appeals court. I mean, is there even the most remote of possibilities that this could wind, such an argument could wind up in front of the Supreme Court of Canada, or is that just not possible? Well, you know, it's it's up to the Supreme Court to decide what kind of cases they want to hear. Right. If they feel it's a matter of national importance that that issue be addressed, then they'll certainly hear it. That's the point, uh, isn't it? National importance. Yes, it yeah, is. That's yeah. what the Supreme Court decides yeah. uh, to hear cases based on. And uh, so, you know, if there were a, a, a roiling public debate that stretched across the country on the legalization of a particular substance in the future, yeah. uh, yes, the Supreme Court could uh, uh, join in the debate and, and lend their okay. voice to it. I, I don't see that happening right now, but you know, who knows what can happen who in knows. the future. But at this point, uh, all we're doing is, is, is answering a speculative question. I don't want to get us started on that road where you're before the Supreme Court arguing the case of, uh, of the possible inclusion of, of the drugs uh, into, right. into the acceptability of Canadian society. David, always appreciate the time. Thank you so much for, for talking to us today. Yep, my pleasure, Roy. David Butt criminal lawyer in Toronto. Peter McKay is uh, Canada's former Minister of Justice and Attorney General.
He's also the former foreign affairs minister and minister of national defense. Before that, he was a prosecuting attorney. And uh, he's a litigator now with Baker and McKenzie in uh, Toronto. He's a partner in litigation. And we spoke last night, Peter, and, uh, and, and you and we talked about the political side of things, your professional life. But you said to me, I'm also now going to talk to you as a dad. So I thought, I thought, I thought it was really important that this whole issue about drugs, legalization of, use of, social acceptance of, the parents, the parents' role is significant. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Roy. Thank you for having me on. So what do we start with? Well, let me, let me start with this. You're the former justice minister. You're the former attorney general. You're a prosecuting attorney from the, from the, from the perspective of the politician on the other side of the aisle, the conservative politician. What do you make of the liberals' legislation to legalize recreational use of marijuana? Well, I think it's a mistake, and I think it was pushed too far, too fast. We as a government and, and as Attorney General, we had seriously considered decriminalization, which was recommended by chiefs of police and many police contacts that I had across the country. That would have been more akin to the way we actually treat alcohol. The problem with full legalization, which only Uruguay amongst developed nations have embraced, so Canada and Uruguay, uh, is that it, it in my opinion, uh, takes away some of the deterrent. It basically strips away, for young people in particular, uh, the, the resistance that they should have at an early age, and it normalizes it, right? It isn't the legalization, it's the normalization. And I've heard the ads, as I'm sure you have, and the way in which CBC and others have covered this story, and it is all about now embracing this as being a good thing and socially acceptable, and something we should almost encourage people to do. And that, to me, betrays the, the reality that I, for one, and I think there are others, believe that it's a gateway drug. Uh, I believe there will be more impaired drivers, inevitably. I, I think that we are going to see more workplace safety issues. I think we are going to see more addictions, uh, mental health issues. So a lot of social costs associated with this. Now, on the other side, we've been told repeatedly by this government it's going to increase the tax base, it's going to empty out the jails, relieve a lot of the pressures within the justice system. That's just not true. Uh, number one, I, I prosecuted cases back 20, 25 years ago. They were not charging people for simple possession. The jails are not full of people who have been convicted for simple possession. And as far as the tax base, uh, we heard it from some of the big producers this week, it's the black market that's flourishing right now because there simply isn't enough supply. So I think we have unfortunately gone down a road now where we're going to pay a, a huge price down the road. And that's, you know, there's lots we could say about the impact this is going to have on our relationship with the United States and hundreds of thousands of Canadians crossing the border annually, I think are going to be in for a very negative surprise. Uh, and I, I just, I firmly believe and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, we've been telling people for 25, 30 years or more, don't smoke cigarette tobacco, it's terrible for you, but smoke marijuana. Hold it in your lungs without a filter as long as possible. It has the same carcinogens and very well result in the same result of lung cancer. So I, I for one, and I maybe am out of step with society and, and this movement, but I think this is a really big mistake and not a priority in our country right now. 40,000... 40, not something. 40,000 people a year die in this country, roughly 40,000, die every year from tobacco-related illnesses. That's inhaling tobacco, 40,000 every year. Right. So, and I spoke yesterday, last weekend, with the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Clearly, they're concerned about the ingestion of, of, uh, of carcinogens into, into people's lungs. But somehow, because of the... I think because of the societal argument over marijuana over decades and the introduction of this legislation and the sales pitch by Trudeau and his cabinet, uh, I, I think it's become, as you said, it's almost, it's almost considered to be unacceptable to raise any objections. J.J. McCullough made a very good point. I mentioned it earlier, Canadian, uh, writing in the Washington Post. Trudeau's legalization rollout was tied to arbitrary timelines a stunt implemented as it was con conceived shallowly 
and for short-term electoral gain. There's, not, there's nothing accidental about the date of legalizing marijuana. It's almost to the day, a year from the next federal election. That's, that's what it was well, about. That's right. I, I 100% agree with that. And I think, you know, when we recall Trudeau first making almost a spontaneous utterance about his own marijuana use and experience, and then saying they were going to go to full legalization. I don't think this was well thought out as a liberal platform plank, but I think it got a lot of attention from a lot of young people. Uh, I also think they haven't thought out the implications in terms of our our closest trading partner. And, you know, this impact on kids, as you, you mentioned in your intro, as a father, you're going to have to have these discussions as a mother with your kids a lot sooner. Because when they can say to you, as part of the argument, well, the government uh, has legalized it, they've condoned it, the prime minister himself is a user, what's, what's the, the harm? Where's the impediment? Um, it, it just, in my opinion, this is, is a very ill-advised step. We could have done this incrementally through decriminalization, put more, more regulation around it, allowed the police the opportunity to develop the technology that they need to detect impairment. Uh, synergistic effect of drugs and alcohol is also very hard to measure. I've done those cases. And so we're, we're behind the eight ball. We're now stuck with this government decision thrust upon the country, and people are scrambling. And, boy, we've got you know 10 different provinces, three territories, all different jurisdictions, all different ways in which to look at, and three, if not arguably four, levels of government who are going to try to tax it. Um, it seems to me we're in, we're in for a big challenge. Well, they certainly haven't put the uh, street corner drug dealer out of business. If anything, they've made, they made that drug dealer even more interesting. I was going to say appealing, but I won't. I'll say interesting because much of the product that's eventually going to be available commercially isn't now. And the only place you can get that is from the criminalized drug dealer. So if you want to experiment yeah, beyond yeah. smoking, who are you going to go to? Yeah, you have to go to your local drug dealer, and I suspect a lot of people will continue to do that. As they've been doing for decades. More. Right. When you see more of the government-operated um, shops or, or even the private shops, depending on which province you're in, yeah. if you're somebody who doesn't want uh, the public to know that you're a smoker, you're still going to continue to use that that drug dealer. Or grow it yourself. Let's not forget, that's an option. You, yeah. can, you can grow it yourself. It's a weed, after all. Right. Peter, I, uh, I thank you for joining us. It's an issue that, that needs to be talked about. And we've talked about it coming into it, but now it's a reality. And, uh, and anybody who wants to challenge seems to be uh, sort of not in step with the new, uh, the new mainstream of society. And I, I don't buy that for a second. Any, any piece of legislation that is introduced, if it's shallow, if it doesn't have what uh, the, the component parts that make it really uh, encompassing and useful, and it deserves to be challenged and investigated, and that's what we're doing. I appreciate your time. Good talking to you again. Well, that's what you do, Roy, and I appreciate what, you know your, these conversations that you, uh, that you put out there. And, it, you know, if you have a contrary view, as, as you may and, and your listeners may, uh, you shouldn't be demonized for it. You know, if you, if you question immigration policy or if you, you're not sure about some of the political correctness, it, it's not to be labeled or you're... Your argument is is chastised simply because you don't go along. Yeah. With the, well, I'm mainstream. never worried about that, Peter, and I don't think my listeners. No, you never did. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. Roy. Thanks for the time, Peter McKay, the former Attorney General, the former Justice Minister. This is from the BBC. Uh, Turkey will never allow a cover-up. A ruling party spokesperson said, "Turkey has vowed to reveal all details about the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi." After Saudi Arabia admitted for the first time he'd been killed in its consulate in Istanbul. Should be an embassy, I think, in the capital city. Uh, Saudi Arabia suggested on Friday Mr. Khashoggi, a prominent Saudi critic, had died in a fistfight. Turkish officials previously said he'd been deliberately killed inside the consulate and his body dismembered. Earlier this week, unnamed Turkish officials told media outlets... They had audio and visual evidence to prove this. The Saudi kingdom has come under intense pressure to explain Mr. Khashoggi's disappearance after he entered the Istanbul consulate, I guess it is, on 2 October to seek paperwork for his forthcoming marriage. Until Friday, it had denied knowledge 
of his whereabouts and insisted he left the building alive. And as one of our listeners emailed, who brings a bone saw to a fight, to a fist fight? I want to talk about this to uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht. He was in Turkey when uh, Jamal Khashoggi was killed. He lived in Kuwait for five years. He's the class of 1965 professor in leadership at the Royal Military College of Canada and at Queen's University. And he's the author of North American Strategic Defense, Security and Sovereignty in an Uncertain World. And if you read Dr. Luprecht's books, I guarantee you, if you're like me, you're going to learn something. You'll learn a lot. Christian, thank you very much for for taking the time. What, what is uh, Why is Turkey stalling? What's going on? Yeah, so I, the Middle East is all about saving face. And I think part of what Turkey is trying to do is give Saudi Arabia an opportunity to come clean and to try to save some face here. Because if the Turks genuinely have the intelligence that they claim to have, it would fundamentally undermine, of course, the narrative that Saudi Arabia in general and Mohammed bin Salman have been peddling. That would be deeply damaging to MSB's image because, of course, he has considerable support, in particular from young Saudis, which he has built by quasi-liberalizing Saudi Arabia, reopening movie theaters, allowing women to drive and whatnot. But, of course, at the same time, uh, curtailing the religious police. But at the same time, he has very much clamped down on dissent. And what we forget in this whole conversation is that Saudi Arabia is, in a way, the world's last remaining absolute monarchy. Only the crown prince makes decisions, and he will not be swayed by interests or otherwise. And so I think Turkey knows that coming clean here uh, with the intelligence they allegedly have would be deeply damaging to MSB's standing and image. And if we undermine MSB, um, and his legitimacy with his large swath of young followers, and don't underestimate, I mean, half the Saudi population is under 25. There are a large number of young, uh, of young followers. Uh, this could have much broader repercussions for the stability of Saudi Arabia and the region as a whole. So there's more at stake here uh, than simply whether the Saudis are being transparent and honest about what actually transpired and the motives behind it. So, so F- MSB is the uh, is the crown prince, right? What, what what's his name? Mohammed bin Salman. Okay. So Mohammed bin Salman. I've seen his photograph. Yeah. So if he, if the Turks uh, release all the information, and haven't they already done the damage when they say, "Look, we have it. We know you've done it." We're telling you, we know you've done it. We're telling you we're going to tell the world all the details. Come clean. Haven't they already compromised him? If he, what's the worst that could happen to Mohammed bin Salman uh, if the Turks release the information? Internally, he's the absolute l- l- ruler. So what's the worst that could happen to him? Yeah, so I think, again, we forget an important a component of what matters in the region, which is honor and personal relationships. Uh, for I think for Turkey, this is less about the fact that this is a journalist. I mean, Turkey uh, hardly has a stellar track record when it comes to uh, allowing journalists to report, let alone report freely. Uh, and this is more about somebody who had a uh, Jamal Khashoggi, who had a personal relationship uh, with the Turkish president, with Tayyip Erdogan. Um, and that Erdogan, I think, feels a sense of having to defend the honor of uh, that relationship and that friend, and that he feels that honor has been fundamentally betrayed by the Saudis, and not just, of course, in the way that um, the uh, a thorn in the side was eliminated, but I think the method here, um, I think, d- deeply uh, was, is deeply personally offensive uh, to Erdogan, that um, a, essentially a, a hit squad would allegedly travel uh, to Turkey, abuse diplomatic immunity, do this on essentially quasi-sovereign territory, um, and not just even kill him, but essentially, uh, so, so in, the, in the Islamic code, 
um, if a, a, a part, a, a part of, I guess, the narrative in the Islamic code is that if a part of your body causes you to sin, then you cut off that part of the body. And so I think the alleged cutting off of fingers is very much symbolic of that it is these fingers that caused you apparently to sin if the narrative that Turkey is peddling is correct um, against the almighty and uh, all-knowing, omniscient and absolute ruler of Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I think this is perhaps what is really uh, behind uh, what is driving uh, Turkey's interests and intent with regards to Saudi Arabia, uh, but also Turkey understanding that um, it is able to rehabilitate its own image internationally here as basically a defender of human rights and of, uh, of, of freedom of the press in a way that is sort of, I think, incidental to the, uh, to the whole matter. Uh, and being able to show that, uh, I mean, Turkey is really the first country that is able to show that uh, even the Saudis' power is limited because, of course, uh, Western countries, and in particular the United States, the perception has always been Saudi Arabia has to be propped up at any and all costs because instability in Saudi Arabia is simply not uh, in anyone's strategic interest in the region. And I think Turkey is saying uh, that, look, even the Saudi, uh, even the new Saudi crown prince who likes to portray himself as this extremely powerful figure um, is fallible, and the Turks are happy to show that. Okay. And, and he's shown himself to make uh, some blustering strategic miscalculations, the war in Yemen that he thought would be over in a few weeks and was going to bolster him as this uh, great regional leader and military strategist that has turned out to be this, uh, this big disaster. And so uh, I think weakening MSB uh, might be in Turkey's strategic interest. It's not necessarily in the region's strategic interest. Okay, so the devils, are, the devil's in the details. It's not enough to call him a journalist. He had a he had a he had a major role that he played, did he not, with that royal family? So, I think this is partially what also is driving this sort of internally uh, within um, the the Saudi inner circle that if uh, MSB uh, ordered or was actively in the know of this operation. Um, uh, it me- makes essentially anybody in the inner circle vulnerable. And MSB has already sent those signals by through his quasi-anti-corruption campaign, where he's essentially locked up literally dozens of, uh, uh, of, of wealthy individuals as a way of showing that he is the... Uh, single authoritarian, uh, the single authority when it comes to decision making to Saudi Arabia, and that he's going to change practices. At the same time, if he, of course, didn't know about what was transpiring here, it would suggest that he doesn't have full control over his inner circle, and that people are editorializing, which would then make him, if you're trying to portray yourself as a um, as as a quasi an absolute monarch, makes you look uh, considerably less powerful. And so, either way. Uh, he finds himself in this quandary with somebody who derives... I mean, t- 10 years ago, uh, someone like Khashoggi wouldn't have been a major challenge for uh, the Saudi leadership because many people wouldn't have simply had access to what he's writing. But by virtue of the proliferation of uh, social media and the Internet, um, people who have uh, over a million followers and who write critical pieces that can now be accessed by anyone around the world... Um, uh, and that have uh, both the knowledge of the inner circle and legitimacy that he had, Mm -hmm. and then speak out critically against uh, that inner circle, the decision-making and some of the policies being pursued, become a major liability uh, for uh, a ruler who wants to call all the shots. And, I mean, the practice that we saw here is what transpires in, in Saudi Arabia itself every day. It's just something that we don't witness because of the tight control on... Uh, you know, I, on find it interesting that you, I find it interesting you said that because the, the imam said the same thing. He said this happens all the time. It happens constantly. It's just not reported on uh, in, in, in Western media. It's, no, it's, it's not a surprising development in the Middle East. The surprise is that it's getting all the international attention to people in the Middle East. But uh, the, another question that's asked constantly is this. Why would a man walk into a consulate, given everything that's gone on, given what he knew about and what he'd been doing and what he'd said about the the royal family and the inner circle, as you just mentioned, why would he walk into that place? Well, I think partially he probably felt that by virtue of the status that 
he had within Saudi Arabia, that would make him somewhat immune from what what eventually transpired. But he probably also felt that if something, I mean, look, the reason, let's not kid ourselves. It's not by accident that Turkey had the consulate under surveillance and that he himself might have uh, might have worn or otherwise had a surveillance device on him, certainly under audio surveillance, and it suggests perhaps also under under internal video surveillance. Um, this is partially why the uh, why Turkey doesn't probably want to share that intelligence because it would of course be deeply offensive to the Saudis uh, to do that. But I think he knew that something was up, and so I think that's partially why the Saudis were uh, were there and did not give uh, why the, why 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 Turkey was there and okay. did not give the Saudis a heads up. To so how does transpiring? How does this end? Um, it looks like Turkey is going to force. Uh, the issue in a way that will not allow the crown prince to save face. Uh, and uh, which, as I explained in the beginning, would have serious repercussions for the legitimacy of the, uh, of the crown prince. Um, and so uh, I think that Turkey is trying to play the strongman, not just with Saudi Arabia, but it's also trying to position itself as playing this leadership role in the region that it has long sought, in particular since the beginning of the Syrian conflict. And I think it sees this also as a geostrategic opportunity uh, to reinforce itself as a country that is a serious kingmaker and potential leader. Yeah, and it's not, as though, it's not as though Erdogan doesn't see himself as omnipotent. Um, he certainly has um, aspirations of regional leadership that perhaps previous Turkish leaders did not articulate quite as explicitly, and there are a lot of very large egos within that region, and uh, this is partially, I think, what, what Turkey is looking yeah. to uh, to assert here. But I think um, uh, it will be deeply problematic for uh, the crown prince. Uh, and, and I think this is why we're starting to see a narrative from within Saudi Arabia with multiple people having okay. been arrested. Uh, and, and, and let's remember, the crown prince may have not ordered or known about this. This might have been somebody who's a little bit overzealous uh, trying to do the crown prince's bidding in order to get promoted or get green okay, I don't want to trust. I don't want to be too graphic, but I don't think a body count's over yet. Um, it, it is certainly problematic, I think, for any Saudi citizen who lives abroad. And we've seen the Saudis engage in rather egregious ways of also uh, going after dissidents elsewhere, okay. excluding, including here in Canada. Um, and I think it will uh, likely mean that the Saudis will either have to change course or make do with much more uh, explicit and articulate international criticism of their record, both outside of Saudi Arabia and inside of Saudi Arabia, right. and that sort of scrutiny um, would probably uh, um, not be in the interest of the crown prince. So right. it's, a, it's a serious quandary. Christian, thank you so much. It's always good speaking with you. We'll learn a lot, uh, and uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Christian Liprecht, his new book is North American Strategic Defense, Security and Sovereignty in an Uncertain World. My good friend Joe Warmington, columnist with the Toronto Sun, with the Sun Media, who uh, tackles uh, issues fearlessly, and I, I mean that, uh, joins us in the few minutes we, we want to talk about this here, Joe. Uh, have you noticed a, a difference? Is, is it a more, f- more challenging, dangerous, uh, unpredictable world for you out there? It is. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing that you're talking about here today because in Canada, we kind of take for granted our freedoms. We're, you know, able to sort of go after a mayor or a prime minister and not worry about, you know, being taken out for that. Now, they'll do it on social media. They'll do it behind your back, call your boss, all that stuff. But in terms of ending up, you know, being cut up like this Washington Post guy went through, um, you know, we're lucky here. But I haven't covered an awful lot abroad, but I've been on the air with you from Afghanistan and different places where there you realize that you're always a dangerous journalist. And all the journalists that I met there, most of them are dead. They were blown up in the same cafes that that I met them at. And so, you know, the the world is a really, look, it's a stronghold on facts and governments don't like it at all. And that that includes uh, business people, uh, you know, on the big scale and, and journalism is really, really dangerous now. And it's so instant now, Roy, because within a second you can tweet something out 
uh, that they don't want out. It doesn't have to go through a filter anymore. So that scares the powers that be even more. Yeah, it does, and that's that's the that's the concern because they can launch uh, campaigns against you in any number of ways. And then, uh, and, and Joe, I'm sorry that you know time kind of compressed here. This we have about two minutes, but Stan Bayhall, the, uh, the 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 photographer at the Sun, been around for many years, covering a, a rally that's last local. summer, right, and that's got attacked. The Antifa stuff, the, you know, the Antifa stuff. They realized that the police aren't going to do their jobs and protect a guy like Stan Bayhall, who's there working. He's not part of the protest, other than he's there to capture it, just like I'm there to capture it. As a columnist, maybe I take a point of view, but these guys that come up, you know, Ross McLean is the one that pointed out to me when Stan was hit, the way the guy hit with his hand, it was a designed hit, allegedly, off his uh, skull, and it made it look like he was knocking his hat off, but he didn't. And Stan, to this day, is off work, post-concussion syndrome. And I've worked, he's tried to work. He's come back a couple of times, Roy. And he's really struggling like the hockey players do, you know, and that's not right. He was just shooting a protest at uh, City Hall. Yeah, just with his camera, just doing his job. And this guy hits him in the head. So it, it's when I saw the stats, when I've been reading some stories, and then the Jamal Khashoggi case, I thought this is really becoming a more dangerous world for people to report on and, and, and function in as media and as journalists. And uh, I know you're on the cutting edge of stories constantly, so, the secret to it, though, you know, I think for me is when you criticize somebody or you point out something to make sure that it's not personal so that, you know, you do it all the time. You know, once you start getting personal with people, then they get personal back with you. You try to be professional and say, look, this is how I feel about this. They'll like you. You still have value. You're still elected or whatever it is. But I see it this way. And then they usually respect you back. And, and I think that's. You know, I think the lack of respect, the fact that everybody thinks because they can go on, <coughs> excuse me, on social media and be, you know, a star and, and not be, you know, they, they can kind of just go and say what they want to say, yeah. call you any name they want to call you. Well, that sort of permeates through the whole society now. Everybody's kind of king, and the journalist is sort of a scumbag. But it's really not like that way at all. The journalist is doing a job. Yeah, that's all we are. We're doing our jobs. We see, we call the situation the way we see it. That's what we get paid to do, and uh, we try to make sure that people know that it's not personal. If they take it personally after you tell them it's not, then really the problem becomes theirs. Joe, thank you so much for the time, my friend. Always good to talk to you, Roy. Take care now. All the best. Joe Warmington, Toronto Sun, Sun Media. When I spoke with John Letts, I, I asked him about... The involvement Canada had shown, or the interest in the Canada had shown, in bringing his son to this country. This was last Sunday. We have loads of information from Global Affairs saying we're going to do everything we can. Also, the Canadian High Commission to begin with. Then it went over to Global Affairs. It's very, very clear. They said as soon as Jack, certainly as soon as he gets out of Syria um, and gets to a third country, then we have full consular help for him. Um, you know, and the British might also then. Um, work with them to get him to a safe third country and eventually back to the UK or to Canada. He then went on to talk about how the federal government had sent very positive messages about helping his son, Jack. That's the working plan. I've got all sorts of um, information and messages from them saying we're doing everything we can. You know, we we won't tolerate um, mistreatment of Canadians abroad. Um, He has a right to return. all of that, and it was all very positive. But as I say, when we went in Ottawa in May, that was a pretty dispiriting meeting, I suppose to say. And then after that, the, uh, Global Affairs hasn't been communicating very much. But we still thought there was at least some some progress because the Kurds had released statements saying we're very very happy to hand him over to Canada, and the Canadians clearly said we're happy to take him. All right. So that's John Letts from last Sunday talking about Canada's engagement and interest in bringing his son Jack, who British media have dubbed Jihadi Jack, and Mr. Letts opposes that, says his son is not a member of ISIS, and I said to him, it's hard to, hard to believe that he's not. He was in Raqqa for an extended period of time anyway. So Canada, according to the father of Jack Letts, was very much involved in trying to get his son here. So then this week in Ottawa, there was an exchange between Conservative leader Andrew Scheer and the Prime Minister, and the question was whether Justin Trudeau had invited uh, 
um, Jack lets it to enter this this country. And Global News writes in part that um, Shear said this government's this government proactively reached out to try to bring this individual who's fought with a terrorist organization back to Canada. They took it upon themselves to reach out to bring this individual to Canada. Why? Trudeau responded to Shear's questions broadly, stating that his government takes, quote, with the utmost seriousness the threats posed by traveling extremists. What the hell does that have to do with the, with the, with the question that was asked? Anyway, so as you've been hearing over the last 18 to 24 hours, Ontario Conservative MPP Dave Smith from Peterborough Kawartha, that's his reading, uh, writing, is introducing private members' legislation which would strip returning uh, terrorists of their, their privileges and rights, or not rights, but privileges in, in, uh, in, in the province. While Mr. Trudeau passed legislation to safeguard Canadian citizenship for convicted terrorists who were dual citizens. That's one of the first things he did when he became Prime Minister of Canada. The man's priorities are a little weird. Um, Dave Smith uh, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Smith, thank you very much for the time. Obviously, you saw a need here. Absolutely, I did, Roy, and thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, good to talk to you. So, uh, to, how did this how did this go from concept to, to to idea to moving forward with the with the with the legislation? Talk to us about that. Uh, it's something that uh, has been in the back of my mind for for quite some time. I was really disappointed with Trudeau a year and a half or so ago when you know, he made the statement that a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, and that they weren't going to strip dual citizens. Uh, of their Canadian citizenship if they were charged and convicted with uh, terrorist crimes. Uh, I think that a, a criminal is a criminal, is a criminal, and it, it comes down to that. When uh, when there was a report that came out that uh, they were going to send a Canadian who had been convicted in Syria of terrorism uh, back to Canada, I was enraged by it. And then finding out uh, that, that Mr. Trudeau has actively reached out to someone else who is a known terrorist that we have video of on his Facebook page, uh, that's uh, that was the final straw. We you know, can't have that. Yeah. So, so what would your legislation, in fact, then um, make reality for anyone who's returning to Canada or coming here as a dual citizen and who might expect privileges, certain privileges, in the province of Ontario? What would they face as far as denial of those privileges are concerned? So anyone who is convicted under Section 83 of the Canadian Criminal Code or an equivalent, if uh, Canada has a, uh, a reciprocal agreement with those countries, they would be stripped of all of the privileges that uh, you enjoy in Ontario as, as a member of Ontario. You would lose access to a driver's license. You would not be eligible for uh, social assistance with either Ontario Works or with ODSP. You would lose access to OHIP. You would lose um, access to municipal and, and provincial properties. You would not be able to get a, a hunting or fishing license. Anything at all that uh, that the people of Ontario get as privileges, we would be taking away. And uh, I take it this this has the support uh, of the Premier? Absolutely it does. Uh, we wouldn't have gotten this far in the process if... Uh, if the Premier's office hadn't agreed to let me do this. Yeah. Mr. Smith, I want you to listen to something. And uh, this is Justin Trudeau before being elected prime minister. We've played this clip many times on the air, but it's relevant and, and I think it's it's fundamental to what, what you're talking about and what your legislation would make fact. Here's Justin Trudeau during the 2015 election campaign. Yes, yes. Uh, C-24... Uh, <laughs> It's the bill that, for me, exemplifies the Conservatives' approach to politics. Because what they get to say with the Liberal Party's staunch opposition to C24, because we absolutely and thoroughly impose it, is that, and I'll give you the quote, so you guys can jot it down and put it in a attack ad somewhere, that the, the Liberal Party believes that terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship. Because I do. 
And I'm willing to take on anyone who disagrees with that. It's almost stunning to hear that, isn't it? It is. It really is. Let me put it in perspective for you, Roy. If a 16-year-old driver in Ontario, someone who's, who has their G2 license, speeds a couple times too much, we take away the privilege of driving. And yet a convicted terrorist will be allowed to drive. We know that you can use a, a vehicle as, as a weapon. My parents are 72 and 74. They go down to Florida. If they're sick and can't come back quite as early as they should, and they stay one day too long in Florida, although they've paid taxes and been a contributing member in our society for 70-plus years, we take away OHIP. We don't deny them the ability to go into the hospital. We don't deny access to the doctor, but they will have to pay for it. And yet, a terrorist is going to be a convicted terrorist is going to be given those privileges that our seniors who may have to spend a day too long or two days too long in Florida when they should get to enjoy their retirement we take that privilege away you can't tell me that's right no it isn't what's the number of your bill then uh, it hasn't been tabled yet, so it hasn't been given okay. a number. Okay. I will be tabling it uh, early this week. Well, I thank you for joining us. I think you will find that the vast majority of people in the province of Ontario and across Canada will support your legislation. There will be those who won't. It'll be interesting to hear how the opposition decides to phrase their uh, their their position. Um, but I, I think you're doing exactly the right thing, and thank you again. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Roy. I appreciate that. MPP Dave Smith. Kyle Matthews is the executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights. He wrote an op-ed piece, which you can see on Global News, uh, Why Canada Must Prosecute Returning ISIS Fighters. It's also in other uh, media like the Halifax Chronicle Herald. Kyle, thank you very much for the, for the time. Um, I, for why on. is this? It shouldn't even be necessary for you to write this. No, you're, you're right. It shouldn't. Um, I, I was asked by a Canadian think tank to kind of put together a much larger policy paper about what to deal with returning foreign fighters or, or what they call uh, or, you know, ISIS or, or members that, are of, that have gone off to war zones and joined these dangerous groups. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been something that's been bothering me for a few years because I, I, I keep on getting the sense that our government doesn't take this very seriously um, and uh, and they seem to be ignoring, or at least not mentioning, the severity of the crimes that that ISIS and these groups have committed. Um, and you know, I, I think the crime of genocide, of sexual slavery, destroying cultural heritage sites, attacking NATO allies, um, you know, uh, using child soldiers. I think these are all some of the worst, highest level crimes anyone could commit on the planet. Um, and to then suggest that when people come back they should be reintegrated right away, to me, uh, just puts aside the entire question about seeking justice for the victims of, of these heinous crimes that were committed. And when you have a prime minister saying that returning ISIS fighters, I don't even want to use the word fighters, terrorists, uh, murderers, could perform extraordinarily well in, in helping Canada as far as de-radicalizing individuals is concerned. This is a prime minister speculating on his own. This is, this is all... It's just disturbing. Well, I think a lot of people um, across different political spectrums um, did think that comment was a, a little um, misplaced. I mean, yes, there have been cases in the past where some people who joined extremist groups um, did change their ways, change their mentality, and have gone on to, um, to be a counterforce. And, and that has happened in the past, but that doesn't mean that every single person is. And, and the people returning also, it's taking place at a period when they've been defeated on the battlefield. Um, most of these people, if their project was successful, would still be in Iraq or Syria overseeing, uh, torturing minorities, religious minorities, sexual minorities. So it, it just seems that the context of some of these statements just doesn't really fit with reality. And, and also Canada's approach um, has been very, very different from all of our closest allies, the U.S., the U.K., France, Australia, and, and we just really seem to be an outlier out there that, that, that seems to be not taking this very seriously and, and thinking that, you know, that when everyone comes back, we'll click our heels and everyone will 
sing Kumbaya, my Lord, and dance around, and, and we'll forgive all of this. But, but I think that, that there are many cases of, of returnees, particularly in Europe, that have committed terrorist attacks or, or try to brainwash others to do that. And I think, you know, we took up arms to fight these people. Or they're coming back. Um, we should be a little more forceful in trying to, um, to bring them to account. And Stuart Bell told us last weekend that after he spoke with uh, Muhammad Ali, the Torontonian, who joined ISIS and who admitted to playing soccer with his ever dad and other things, absolutely didn't apologize, wasn't repentant at all. He, it was all about him and his, his return to Canada. There was, no, uh, there, was, there was no, gee, I'm, I'm terribly sorry for what I've done even. There was nothing, nothing of that nature. Well, no, I mean, and that's the case. A lot of these people who, who are interviewed, um, you know, uh, proclaim an innocence, um, don't go deeper into what the group did and what they might have contributed to you know, playing with severed heads to me, you know, if anyone did that in Canada, that'd be front page news and a person would not get the benefit of the doubt. But um, yeah, and people, you know, they, they don't want to be in prison in, in northern Syria. They'd like to be free or at least be able to come back uh, to Canada. Um, that's not a surprise. But, but when people are admitting to some of these, these horrible crimes, um, we should be thinking about some of the legislation we have Absolutely. on the books, including, uh, you know, these were act, there's terrorist groups, but they're acts go yeah. far beyond the crime of terrorism and, and touch upon the Canada War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity Act that we've right. used in the past to prosecute uh, genocidaires from Rwanda or, or, or others that have committed atrocities in foreign lands, but yeah. then we prosecute them here. So, Kyle, I have to stop you because we were at the top of the hour, but thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for the reminder with your, with your op-ed, Why Canada Must Prosecute Returning ISIS Fighters. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. All the best. Kyle Matthews. Jessie Mello is uh, in Vancouver. She's a Vancouver-based daughter, a former professional boxer, Eddie Hurricane Mello, who with his best friend was shot to death in Toronto in 2001 in a $75,000 contract killing. And the hitman from well, what Jesse told me, and I read some accounts, uh, including one by Peter Edwards, staff reporter for the Toronto Star, which was um, written in November, November the 8th of last year. Um, Jesse is is upset, and understandably, uh, that the the man who killed her father is now uh, petitioning for parole and supporting him is the prosecutor who actually put him away. Jesse, uh, thank you for getting in touch, and uh, I want to introduce you to Scott Newark, former prosecutor in Alberta, who was also the former executive director of the Canadian Police Association and uh, is an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. So, hi, Jesse. Hi, hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Not too bad. Thank you for having me on, Roy. Yeah, you bet. And talk, say hello to Scott. Hello, Scott. Hi, Jesse. So, 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 Jesse, just in your words, what's going on? What do you want, what do you want to address with Scott? So basically, you know, um, this was very much premeditated first degree murder. And, um, you know, um, Stephen Sheriff, who was the crown prosecutor for us and, and the public and everything at the time, he, you know, for lack of a better word, dumbed it down to second degree murder charges in a plea deal in hopes that, you know, they would get the man that originally hired um, Charles Gagné, um, you know, for this murder. And, uh, you know, he was never, um, he, he was out on a pass, on a day pass from CSC. And, you know, they had um, commented on my public inquiry afterwards that, you know, they didn't monitor him properly because he was supposed to stay, you know, within his boundaries. He made it from Ottawa to Toronto, to Mississauga, you know, uh, murdered my dad while he sat in his vehicle speaking with his longtime childhood friend, um, Johnny Paveo, and then, you know, uh, hijacked, violently hijacked a car, ditched his weapons and everything, and went back to the halfway house that he was in as if nothing had happened. And, um, you know, um, he, he was given this uh, life sentence with eligibility for parole after 12 years. And he's now, um, that article from November 8th, that was, you know, a big shock to us because, again, um, you know, he, he had applied for these ETAs and uh, 
Steve Sheriff showed up on his behalf, and we were not told. Steve Sheriff, being the prosecuting attorney, who put him away. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, so what? So, what's the situation? Is is this 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 man Charles Gagne, who says he's yes. changed his life, and Mr. Sheriff says he's changed his life, and now supports him? And his yes, question refers to him as a friend, actually. Yeah, yeah. To, yeah. to get out, Scott, you know the story. What's what's your what's your perspective on this? What well, what do you I want to add to this? When I first read the uh, the clippings of it um, and the reduction, because you're you're 100% correct, Jesse, that the, the, just the, the definition of what he did is, in fact, first-degree murder. Mm-hmm. I can just tell you, based on my experience, both as a prosecutor and working in the security world, um, I can almost guarantee you uh, that uh, a deal was struck because they thought this guy was going to give them something, whether it's on the specific case or on other cases, that he was going to become an informant. Right. And that as a result of that, that's why... They agree to the reduced uh, charge and the re- and then most importantly the reduced parole eligibility. When mm-hmm. I saw the stuff though about the prosecutor subsequently showing up at the parole hearings, um, I got to tell you I have seen this myself, not explicitly with prosecutors, but when people are involved with um, informants on this stuff, and it's been law enforcement officials for me, where in effect they get turned. And because it seems as though it's such a, you know, a, a wonderful, grand thing that we're going to use this guy and get all this information, they get manipulated. Right. Uh, I've seen that actually happen. I had one case in particular where it was a couple of MPs asked me to meet with this guy, and it was about Chinese espionage and everything, but it was the same kind of a thing. And at one point, they said, well, yeah, you know, this uh, undercover, this guy will continue with his undercover work, and... You know, that'll be great. And I said, he's not an undercover agent. He's an informant. Right. looked at me, and they they said, oh, my gosh, you know, you're being insulting. I said, well, there's a reason. Okay, an undercover agent is a good guy pretending to be bad. An informant's a bad guy pretending to be good. Right. That sure sounds exactly what the case is, including this, and let me just say, grossly inappropriate behavior by the former prosecutor. Absolutely. So, uh, so Jesse, what's the question? What do you want to know from Scott? What you can do? What you should do? What's available to you? Yeah, like I, I just actually, you know, a couple weeks ago, got the phone call saying that you know he wants to come out um, for a visit um, to you know visit his daughter in Mississauga where the homicides actually occurred, and you know he's got the support and everything else like that. I mean, the two parole board. Um, members, you know, Kevin Corcoran and Suzanne Poirier, who was actually also on the, recently on the Paul, uh, Paul Bernardo. Yes, that's right, yeah. Yes, and they said, you know, he's a long ways from any parole date and everything else like that. But, I mean, this is a career criminal. He has admitted so many things, um, and yet they still gave him these ETAs. So then, of course, it's up to the warden. And my big fear is now, with the new warden being at Beaver Creek, um, you know, that he is going to grant these passes, he's going to come back out, and he's really working towards his um, parole and, you know, release and everything else like that. Mm-hmm. And every time this goes through, I mean, I've been I've been following the, the Bernardo case and everything recently as well, and, and I agree with the Mahaffey and French families absolutely that every time these guys feel like they deserve freedom, it is the victims who are made to feel like, you know, they're the ones that are so in the wrong. We don't get any answers. I'm not privy to any of his, you know, records or anything else like that. And every time he applies, you know, we get, we don't get time to heal. We don't get time to grieve or mourn or try to move on because we constantly have to write these victim impact statements, reach out. I've reached out to Premier Doug Ford. I haven't heard anything, you know, back. And just everything was so misappropriated in the sense that, you know, why was this guy not you know, designated as a dangerous offender when he had all the earmarkings for it, that would have kept him off, you know, and prevented him from doing Okay, let me, let me let me just jump yep. in here, Jesse. So, Scott, you have the victim, uh, and, and you've heard victims' families so many times uh, express their frustration, uh, ask the questions, raise the issues yeah. that Jesse's raising. Where, the, where does she stand? What's going to happen here? Where, let, does let she have any rights? Jesse, does she have any options? Too, that, uh, I also uh, was the vice chair of the Ontario Office of Victims of Crime, Debbie Mahaffey worked with us in our office, and part of what we were always pushing for, with some success, not complete, was to try to get um, victims entitled to get more relevant information, exactly like you were talking about, 
so that you know what it is that's actually going on. Mm-hmm. If the, the, the line was that uh, you know victims do, uh, don't uh, need a veto, but they do deserve a voice. Right. And what's important about that is, in my experience, that also holds both correctional officials and the parole board to greater accountability when they know that somebody's watching. The Corrections and Conditional Release Act is the governing legislation. It's federal legislation. There are very limited things that the province can do other than assist you through the uh, uh, victims' services that it provides. But are, are you registered with Correctional Services yes. Canada and the Parole Board? Okay. Yeah, um, absolutely. Can I suggest what you should do as well, too? If you go Take a look at the legislation. There are some things that the service is now obliged information to give to victims, but the, the, the relevant information that you're talking about, you've correctly identified, is under Section 26 of the um, uh, 26.1b, of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, and it's in their discretion. But, for example, they have the ability, they have the lawful authority to tell you what programs he's been taking. Has it been successful? What's his conduct been like inside? And the more information that you know, as I'm sure you've experienced, the more you are better able to make pointed arguments about why he shouldn't be granted the kind of releases that he's seeking. And, right. and just one other thing, that, as I was looking at this originally and going back, um, this guy has already not made parole or day parole, mm-hmm. okay, which is be- the only reason that he wouldn't have is because either CS, well, it would actually be the parole board if he's applied, but they've determined that his risk is too high to be released. Right. That means they've made those decisions. So what, if that's the case, what's changed? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I, and and let me also just say, uh, in a somewhat cynical way, one of the in my experiences, one of the best ways you can actually ensure greater accountability and the right things being done is exactly what you're doing, which is getting this out in the media. Because mm-hmm. those officials then go, ooh, geez, if I make this kind of stupid decision here, somebody might know and somebody might comment on it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's doing the right thing. All right, yeah, and, and that's what we were hoping for after the public inquiry. You know, when they admitted that, you know, they were wrong, he wasn't monitored. I thought, oh, finally, somebody's going to give us the the no. They're going to say no, and that's not what happened. Steve Sheriff appeared. You know, the former Crown appeared there, and I really thought that they were going to right the previous wrongs of you know having him out on that day pass. Yeah. And I mean, he injured a, a, another man too. You know, shot him. He says the gun accidentally went off. I mean. You know, armed robberies that. Yeah, and the best predictor of future behavior is past conduct. Jesse, thank Jesse. I I hope that helped. That you got some information from Scott. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you for getting in touch. And uh, I've, you know, I've heard from. I've also talked to so many victims over the years that I what I try to do as much as possible is give them a forum and opportunity on the air. uh, You know, when we can. Um, Thank you. Thanks for, yes, and no, I, I hope it's helped. It. It helped. Thank you, thank you so Thanks, much, Jesse. Roy and Scott. I appreciate it. Have a great okay. day. All right, Jesse Mello. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. <laughs>